This is a 720 to go podcast from Chicago's WGN Radio 720. This podcast is sponsored by ADM. As one of the world's largest agricultural processors, ADM is uniquely positioned to serve the world's growing needs for abundant food and renewable energy. ADM. When it comes to the business of America's farmland, you need the information from the people who know it best. That's why we bring you AgriCast with Orion Samuelson and Max Armstrong. Thank you, Roger. Good morning to you. Good morning, world, as we come your way with our weekly get-together here on Saturday morning. And a lot of folks to talk to this morning, and we're going to be talking to Jim Fazell, who will tell us how valuable that rain will be if you're fortunate enough to get it. We'll also uh, hear from Lynn Kettleson, our farm broadcaster friend up in Minnesota, who attended uh, Farm Fest uh, this week. I uh, wasn't able to get there because Air Orion wasn't able to fly. And uh, then Naomi Bloom of the Stuart Peterson firm in West Bend, Wisconsin, will sit down with Max and talk markets. And sitting down in my home studio in Huntley, as I said, the godfather of Mirai sweet corn, Gary Pack, who will be joining us a little bit later to talk about the crop and how much we're going to have because of the planting delay. So a lot to talk about. We thank you for being with us wherever you are. Thanks to the technology that's available today, you can get us around the world. And we'll be back to talk to Jim Fazell. When we continue here on the Saturday Morning Show, Jim Fazell joins us here on the Saturday Morning Show. And Jim, after the tough weather we've had for the past few months, it was a gorgeous week, wasn't it? We have had really a tremendous uh, long spell. Actually, a beautiful, beautiful weather. Not too hot. Humidity's not too high. I don't know, and we've had a, a better spell at this time of year in in probably decades. But it's really, really enjoyable. The only problem we have right now is it's a little bit dry. If we get a little sprinkled in the middle of the night, sometime it wouldn't hurt a bit. But you know, we can still we can water our lawns and stuff if we need to. But to get out and enjoy this kind of weather, it's really amazing. I can remember many in August at this time of year with ninety and high humidity. Well, I was out at Belvedere for the Boone County Fair this week. They got an inch and a quarter when we only got a third of an inch here at our house. So, again, the spotty showers continue. Right. We got four-tenths. That's not enough. But it's better than nothing. Yes, it is. Anyway, anyway you know, there, there are some things that we be, need to begin doing out in the garden right now. One of the things we need to start on is dividing perennials. A lot of us are growing perennials instead of annuals or maybe a mix. But every once in a while it gets to the point where we need to do something with the perennial garden because the plants get overgrown and they don't flower as well as they should. And maybe we have some varieties we don't really like. need to get rid of those things. First thing you need to do is go out and label everything. Particularly important to do that when they're in bloom if you can. Probably a little late to do it for some of these things, but most of us have a pretty good idea in in, uh, uh, in mind as to what we want to dig up and divide. And this is really the time to begin on that. There are some things that have to be done later, but there are quite a few things that need to be done now. Um, 
those are the things that have finished flowering or going dormant and so forth. The important thing right now is to dig out the entire root mass, get it out of the garden, and begin to prepare for for uh, replanting these things. You need to be ready to divide them, and uh, that's the thing we should do right now. After you get the clump dug up, you need to begin preparing the parts that you want to save. With iris or early flowering daylilies that are already done, this is a good time to to work on those. Uh, dig up the clumps. You'll find out that they have big fleshy roots and certain crowns that are making bunches of leaves. You want to select out the ones that the crowns that are making the the best leaves. Cut off some of the old rotten tubers and so forth. Some of them that that uh, probably are never going to grow again. Particularly with iris. Uh, iris is susceptible to a borer that gets down into that rhizome. And as you're dividing this, you're going to find pieces that are probably rotten. And you might even find a little pink. Uh, maybe they're not so little now, an inch or an inch and a half long pink caterpillar that's nestled well into those things. You want to get those out of there and dispose of them. Those are the larvae that will come out next spring and lay eggs to start the thing over again. With twiggy types like uh, uh, Bleeding Heart or Monarda, Bee Balm, uh, you want to divide these as well. Uh, they don't have fleshy roots and so forth. They're clumps. And you want to take a spade and cut these clumps in half and maybe in half again. And some of them you need to check, but some of them grow out from the center so you're going to have pieces in the center of these clumps that are not going to grow anymore uh, you can usually tell because the roots are kind of old on those cut those pieces off and save the good fresh pieces that are at the periphery of these clumps uh, spring flowering bulbs can be divided now we don't talk very often about dividing them but this is the time to dig those things up and to divide them if they're beginning to get crowded tulips and daffodils of course, the bulbs on those, so you dig them up, you'll find the bulbs nice and fresh new ones, and sometimes you'll find a little bit of a, of a piece of the old bulb underneath it. Uh, just peel those off and save the good kinds for planting. Hostas, even though they're still growing pretty vigorously right now, can be divided. Uh, they're strange plants because it's almost uh, uh, impossible to kill these things. I guess if you didn't want to, they'd die. But if if you're if you uh, uh, want to dig them up, if this is the time that you have to do it, it works very well right now. They're done flowering. Uh, dig up the clumps of those. Divide them with a spade. Again, save the pieces that look like they're vigorously growing. Now, as you uh, select these pieces out and get them divided, uh, if you don't have a chance to, to plant them immediately, you need to protect them from drying. And usually what I do with these is to put them in a bucket with a little bit of moisture and put a cloth over the top of them because it may be a couple of days before you get back to them. But that will protect them so that these, these roots or rhizomes do not dry out until you can put them back in the ground. Now, in replanting these, you need to prepare your planting site. A lot of us don't bother to do this, but these perennials are going to be in the ground for a couple, three, four, maybe five years, or maybe even longer. You need to spade over the areas that are going to be planted. This prepares the soil. It breaks up the soil. Um, you can add fertilizer. Starter fertilizers can go in at that time. And soil amendments, if the soil is in real poor shape, you want to add, may, may want to add something like peat moss uh, and sand, something like that that loosen the soil up a little bit because if the soil is in good conditions, these things are going to plant and grow a lot better. Now, planting these these 
portions that you've got. You want to dig the planting holes big enough to fit the plants and deep enough. You want to set them at the right depth. This doesn't mean down too deep, and it doesn't mean sticking out of the ground, but things like iris in particular need to be planted with that rhizome in the buds right at the soil surface. They're going to flower the best when they're planted that way. So you want to dig the hole deep enough, set the plants at the right depth. If you've got it dug too deep, throw a little more soil back in and set them until they're correct. Uh, and you want to space them to allow for several years of growth. When you dig them up, you notice how big they got. Did this clump get to be four feet in diameter and you only want two feet? Well, that means that if you're going to leave them in for the time for the time being, you need to plant them so they have room to grow that four feet. It may be a big plant. Uh, if you have smaller ones, you can operate accordingly and, dig, and, and space them so that they do have enough room to grow and yet they give you the, the effect that you want. Now, once you have these set in place, you need to backfill carefully. You need to use good soil. This may be soil that you took out of the hole and modified a little bit. Uh, you need to backfill carefully so you don't knock any of the little buds off these pieces. And you need to be sure that you tuck the soil in underneath these rhizomes or roots so that there's not a void down there. Um, what do you do with the leftovers? That's something that always comes up. You know, um, neighbors are always looking at gardens and they're interested in certain things. If you have a neighbor that said, boy, I love this echinacea. If you ever divide that, let me have some. Well, this is the time to do that. Give some to neighbors. Now, if you're in the process of developing a perennial garden, in fact, there are always works in progress, you may have some plant material that's too small to put out into, the, into your perennial garden, but you may have a place where you're growing these things on. It would be a nurse bed. You can grow material on there, small things or even seedlings. Just line them out and watch them grow and when they get to the right side you can move them. Or if you're not going to get to plant these for another month because the place where you want to put them is in use, uh, they can be healed in so that uh, you can get them out and put them back where you want them maybe a month or a month and a half. The rest of the stuff, the junk, dispose of it in the compost heap or in a, more, in, in, in a waste recycler. Now, what do you do after you get them divided and planted? Well, the first thing is you need the water, especially immediately following planting, to settle the soil around these roots. And you may find that the soil settles more than you want it to. Well, fill a little bit more in and water some more until you have it just the way you want it. Weed control is important. Even if we don't have a lot of rain, weeds grow. And it needs to be, you need to be sure that you keep those under control, especially while these little plants are beginning to, re, to regrow. Mulching can be used. Um, it's not essential in a perennial garden, although a lot of people do it. And this is the time to put the mulch down. Uh, and the other care, as far as we're concerned with these things, you let them grow. Um, cut off the old flowers of the things that are still growing right now. Um, be sure you keep the weeds under control. Uh, I had a question about fall gardens. It's time to start the fall gardens, particularly if you have plants. But there are some things that can be seeded outside at this time of year that will grow very nicely for a fall garden that will do a repeat performance. And these would be things like lettuce or radishes, things that grow pretty quickly. Incidentally, people say, isn't it a little bit late? Well, our good friend Greg Solier expects fall to be extended and mild. So maybe this is an excellent year for a fall garden. And I've had times in the past where we picked stuff like broccoli up almost till Christmas. So who knows? You never kill a season before it goes, and this may be an exceptionally good one. And, uh, of course, this is the time of the year to start lawns, if you want to do that, right? 
Yes, you know what? We're going to talk about that next week in some detail, how you get ready to do it. Uh, the, the proper time for lawns is now. Usually we aim for about the 15th of the month for seeding. 15th of August is a prime time to do that. Uh, but there's still uh, six or so weeks after that that we can still seed. And, of course, if you're putting down sod, it can be done at any time. But we'll talk about the proper way to get prepared to do that. Okay, look forward to it as Jim Fazell specialist in ornamental horticulture joins us again next week here on the saturday morning show it's 20 minutes after five o'clock here on this saturday morning and a lot of activity in the countryside this weekend county fairs still underway we were up at the boone county fair on wednesday had a great time and thank you to those of you who joined us for our get together we had the dale roadie country road band and uh, had just a great time and it was fun to be able to uh, visit with Al Henninger 90 years old but he served uh, on that fair board at the Boone County Fair for decades and it was fun to see him and I was honored that he came to the fair just to introduce our show and so thanks to him for that well We did not make it to FarmFest, unfortunately, because of the weather situation right here, good weather up there. But our friend Lynn Kettleson, who is a farm broadcaster in Minnesota, of course, spent all three days there. So uh, let's check in with uh, Lynn for a quick report on what happened at FarmFest. Here's Lynn Kettleson. Secretary of Agriculture Sonny Perdue headed a list of dignitaries in agriculture at FarmFest this year that talked about many issues. However, trade was number one. Zippy Duvall, president of the American Farm Bureau Federation, was also there, as was Colin Peterson, chairman of the House Ag Committee. I think, again, we've got to look at this. Maybe it's like the uh, it's darkest before the dawn. I think... uh, we, we realize that we've got to get some resolution to this, and hopefully we can do it sooner rather than later. I think China will come, be coming back in September, so we'll continue talking. But frankly, the ball is in China's court. If uh, they know what we want, we were almost 90% of there when they were here in April before the to- talks broke down. Uh, we need to get back there and finish the deal where we could trade in a fair and free and reciprocal way with China. Farmers always goes in goes into every planting season looking forward to having a good crop, and, and we'll get this one behind us. We'll look forward to the next one. We'll continue to work on the issues like trade and other issues with the president and the secretary, try to make the, the future of agriculture better. I was afraid that this was the outcome we're going to have, and now it looks like what happened Monday is that the Chinese just really got ticked off. Now they're not going to buy any ag stuff. I don't know how this gets resolved beyond me. <laughs> State leaders were also on hand at FarmFest, and they echoed the comments that trade continues to be the number one issue on farmers' minds. It's a very tough issue. I just a few moments ago I had a chance to to uh, talk a minute or two with the Secretary of Ag and talked about these exact issues, and he's a great supporter for agriculture. His take is that we still have to get China to agree to some different terms, and the message I t- tried to relay to him is... What happens if we never get some of these markets back? And 
there wasn't a good answer. He said, well, we got to stick with it. But I said, it's getting harder and harder to stick with it. And we export about 25% of all the pork that's produced in the United States. So when we get these these episodes that happen that really upset the apple cart on trade, it, it has a direct result as to what happens with hog price. And obviously that, that makes a difference for hog producers. It makes a difference for rural communities. There are many, many issues facing agriculture, and typically, if you asked a farmer what's the number one issue, you would get a different response from anybody you talk to. Right now, the people that are walking down this aisle, if you say what's the big issue, they say trade. This is Lynn Kettleson reporting. And our thanks to Lynn for checking in with us from Redwood Falls, Minnesota. That's the home of FarmFest. Good weather and a good event going on there. Well, the firestorm created uh, yesterday by the Environmental Protection Agency. And let me quote what the Renewable Fuels Association had to say. They called it a significant broken promise on the part of the president that will hurt rural America at the worst possible time, and the Renewable Fuels Association strongly criticized the EPA, Environmental Protection Agency, announcement late yesterday that granted 31 more exemptions from the Renewable Fuel Standard to oil refineries, representing more than 1 billion gallons of additional lost RFS demand. And this comes after 54 exemptions were announced, only six requests were denied. And the uh, president and CEO of the RFA, Jeff Cooper, said, at a time when ethanol plants in the heartland are being mothballed and jobs are being lost, it is unfathomable and utterly reprehensible that the Trump administration would dole out more unwarranted waivers to prosperous petroleum refiners. He said today's announcement comes as a total shock as just two months ago, President Trump himself heard directly from Iowa farmers and ethanol plant workers about the disastrous economic impacts of these small refinery handouts. In response, he told us he would look into it, and we believe that would lead to the White House and the EPA finally putting an end to these devastating waivers. Instead, the Trump administration chose to double down on the exemptions, greatly escalating the economic pain being felt in rural America and further stressing the industry already on life support. He was uh, that was Jeff Cooper of the uh, Refiners Associate Renewable Fuels Association, and he was joined by other spokesmen for agriculture, including the president of the National Corn Growers Association, Lynn Crisp, who said waivers reduce demand for ethanol, lower the value of our crop, and undermine the president's support for America's farmers. Waivers benefit big oil at the expense of corn farmers, who between losing export markets abroad and ethanol markets at home are losing patience. Firestorm created by the EPA yesterday in that announcement on the exemptions. 
Well, as I mentioned, a lot of county fairs are underway right now, but a lot of state fairs are underway here in the Midwest. The Wisconsin State Fair at West Allis outside Milwaukee will go into its final day tomorrow. It's the end of this year's fair at Wisconsin, and... uh, Going until Sunday the 18th, the Indiana State Fair at Indianapolis, the Illinois State Fair at Springfield, and the Iowa State Fair at Des Moines. Those fairs underway through August 18. And then at uh, the end of the month, one of the big Midwest County State Fairs, Minnesota, will get underway on August 22nd and continue through September 2nd. So the opportunity to visit a lot of county fairs that are still underway, I highly recommend the Boone County Fair at Belvedere. We were there on Wednesday of this week, had a great time. And uh, then in addition to that, we've got the lineup of farm shows getting ready to start August 22nd through the 25th. That's uh, Thursday through Sunday. Half Century of Progress show. That's at Rantoul, Illinois. Max will be there probably every day, but we'll be there together on stage with a band Saturday at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And then, of course, that's followed on August 27, 28, and 29 by Farm Progress Show at Decatur, Illinois. September 10 through 12, the Big Iron Show at the Red River Valley Fairgrounds, West Fargo, North Dakota. September 17 through the 19th, Ohio Farm Science Review at London, Ohio. And then uh, kind of winding it down in the big outdoor show season, October 15 through 17, the Sunbelt Expo in Moultrie, Georgia. Then we have to wait till uh, next year for the World Expo in Tulare, California. That's the big farm show that they have out there. So... We, uh, of course, don't really know what kind of a harvest season we're going to have from the standpoint of time or when it will get started, but uh, it's going to be a busy time in the field and at the fairs and at the shows coming up. And coming up, we're at news headlines time. When we come back, we'll talk markets with Naomi Bloom. We'll talk Mirai Sweetcorn with Gary Pack, who is sitting right alongside me in my home studio here in Huntley, Illinois. Well, thank you very much, Roger. He's sitting right alongside me here in my home studio, Gary Pack, who, well, I've introduced as the godfather of Mirai Sweetcorn. So we're going to be talking about the progress of that crop and the availability of that crop. But before we do, we're going to take a look at market activity, which these days is being impacted by trade wars and weather and a whole lot of other things. So we'll be talking about all of that, too, as well here on the uh, show. And uh, Max Armstrong, well, he'll join us when we continue here on the Saturday Morning Show. Time now for Samuelson Says. And, of course, this is Orion speaking. And this week, saying thank you to volunteers. Grandview buys homes. I'm Tom Detlich, and Grandview has been buying homes in Chicagoland for over a decade. We will buy your home directly from you in as little as 10 days. 
With Grandview, the process is simple and stress-free. You can get a fair cash offer for your home in as little as 24 hours. Grandview buys homes as is, no matter the condition of the property. You don't need to do any repairs, not even a clean-out. Just leave the stress and the mess to us. Call us at 630-506-8282 or visit us at grandviewhomes.com. This past week, I did one of my favorite activities that I can do during the summer. I attended my first of what will be several county fairs. Now, I've been attending county fairs ever since I was a 4-H FFA kid in Wisconsin, and I must admit there are some parts of the fair that are pretty much the same, but the rides much more exciting than the merry-go-round or the Ferris wheel that I rode, and the variety of food-on-a-stick items that has grown immensely. But today I want to talk about what makes a county fair really work. Volunteers. These are people who give of their time freely at no cost to the fair to make certain everything works. That the livestock shows go well and animals brought to the fair for showing are housed and cared for properly. There are the county fair board members who served for years, even decades, to keep the fairgrounds in good shape and to stage a successful event every year. The 4-H club leaders, the extension 4-H staff, the high school FFA advisors who teach and prepare their students for what I like to call the World Series or the Super Bowl for young people in agriculture. They teach them skills that will last a lifetime. And then, of course, there are the parents who operate the 4-H and FFA food stands and do whatever they can to add to the funds for education. All are volunteers. Few get paid to do what they do, but they do it because they care about the future of America and its young people involved in agriculture. And it goes beyond the county fair. Max Armstrong and I were talking about shows like Half Century of Progress, Farm Progress Show, Farm Fest, and the Ohio Farm Science Review. Those events would not take place were it not for the volunteers from the community that do what they have to do for crowd control and for the safety of the people attending the machinery demonstrations at shows like the Farm Progress Show. To all of you who volunteer, thank you. My thoughts on Samuelson Says, a presentation of Tribune Radio Networks. Standing by, Max Armstrong and Naomi Bloom of Stuart Peterson Firm in West Bend, Wisconsin. And we'll hear from them when we continue on the Saturday morning show. Our market guest this weekend is Naomi Bloom from Stuart Peterson, just on the cusp of another USDA report. And these have proven to be a little bit uh, problematic for, for farmers. Uh, the numbers have been shocking at times, especially that June report. We, we haven't gotten over that yet, have we? Uh, no, absolutely not. The shock of all of the change um, and what was expected and then how things twisted and turned. So I would expect that on Monday we're going to see more twists and turns from this marketplace. The USDA, let's look at corn first. 
Uh, the last number that they gave us for acres is 91.7 million acres, and there's a huge, huge discrepancy about what Monday's report will bring. The lowest estimate from Farm Futures at 83.5 million acres, which was based on a farmer survey, seems quite reasonable based on other producers that we're talking with. And at the higher end of the range, you're looking more like 90 million acres. So no matter what, trade is expecting some sort of a reduction on acres. But then we'll see what the prevent plant, what the harvested acres come out to be. And then ultimately, we have to keep an eye on demand. And with soybeans, same concept, a big range of estimates heading into that report. The most recent USDA number was 80 million acres. And that seems to be more about the trade average going into this report. But the lowest number is as low as 78 million acres. And the highest number is at 83 million acres. So I think it's fair to say None of those numbers are fully priced into the market yet. And with where prices are right now on charts, we are free to react either with a bullish response or a bearish response, depending on what the market throws at us. So be ready for either scenario to happen. And then we'll start talking about yield and weather after that report comes out. Even when there is seemingly friendly news, there's something that cuts it off at the pass. And you mentioned the farm futures estimates. When those came out the other day, that very same day, we got the news that the trade war was being escalated. And so there was nothing but a negative reaction, as I recall, right after that, even though the Farm Futures Survey clearly indicated that we're looking at a significantly smaller corn crop. I think Farm Futures pegged it still over 12 billion bushels, but not too much over 12 billion, right? You're totally correct with that. And so that, if it is that number with Farm Futures, that, again, is not priced into the market. If we get that number, that's $5 corn really quickly. And that's even assuming we have you know smaller demand along the way. You're going to see a big slash in the ending stocks. And that's what the market trades on, the perception of the ending stocks. Are they getting smaller or are they getting larger? And how quickly are they getting smaller? So a lot of moving parts for Monday's report and demand, absolutely something to be watching too. That demand side, uh, what what's your sense of what's happening there? As you've watched exports, for example, as you've watched domestic usage, we're not exactly setting the world afire, are we? We are not. We are not. And I would say that the world is truly waiting to see what we have for a crop or not. If we come in with smaller acres, if we have early frost, you're going to see a lot of people come to the table quickly to buy their corn. They're used to being able to buy hand to mouth and just as needed. And that sense of urgency hasn't been put there yet. However, if you look in our domestic market, if you look at certain areas within the country and how the basis is still strong and how places in Wisconsin and in Michigan are scrambling to secure their corn needs because our crop is so far behind and our dairies are desperate desperate for feed to get set up for the late fall and going into winter. So there's um, a lot that's going to be going forward here. And every weather forecast is going to matter, not just the report on Monday, but keeping an eye on the demand in general, domestic, of course, export market as well. And we'll see if we can get any sort of a trade deal done with China and if their threats are legitimate or not, as far as they won't be buying any agricultural products from the United States. We'll see if that comes to fruition or not. A lot of pieces to watch here at the moment. Huge pieces of this puzzle. And, and, and it's not going to get any easier. And, and we probably won't fully grasp what's happened until closer to Christmas, just until we know for sure, did we or did we not have that early frost? Did we get the harvest in on time? There's places in central Illinois where I didn't realize they don't have dryers for their, for their grain like we all do in Wisconsin. And so if, if their crop is as behind as it is, what if they can't? 
get it off the field in time or they have the ability to dry it? Do, do they try to let it stay in the field longer for, for winter and harvest it later than normal? There's just so many parts that the market, again, will not really fully understand until we get closer to Christmas. You mentioned the basis. To what degree are growers right now able to take advantage of some of these interesting basis situations? Uh, they still are out there in certain areas. The basis had strengthened quite well um, a few weeks back. But then with the futures prices falling, right. some producers making cash sales to take advantage of those prices, some places the basis had widened. But now we're starting to hear it narrow up in just different portions. Of course, in the eastern part of the country, where it's usually corn deficit anyway, the basis is remaining strong there. And again, it's going to be touch and go week by week. So make sure that you're keeping an eye on the local markets around you. The fund traders have been remarkably bearish. And the thing that occurs to me here is we've seen a significant sell-off on Wall Street. I mean, I guess it's not significant given how high we have climbed with uh, those major averages, but still, it's been quite a bit of a retracement. Does that make commodities more attractive to them? Does that have them a little more poised, perhaps, to do something in agriculture commodities if we do get some friendly USDA numbers? I would agree with that. So the thought would be, if money is coming out of Wall Street and people are now looking for a new place to invest their money... Uh, agriculture and commodities can be a great spot to put your money in, especially when there's a story to tell. And I think there still is a story to tell in agriculture. I look back at like 2007, 2008, when we were going into uh, the recession. And so for the short term, commodity prices did follow lower. Just the markets in general were falling apart. But then all of a sudden, two or three months later, you see money coming into commodities, funneling into commodities. And then that's when the marketplace just really caught on fire. And commodities were the hot thing to be in. Everybody wanted a part of it. And so between the agricultural markets and between gold and silver, gold market on fire this week also, people putting their money into safer havens. So I think there is some potential there. We might even hear those commercials again on the radio. Put your money in gold. <laughs> that's right. They, I remember those. They right. pop up all the time. And I, <laughs> I hearken back to uh, you know 20 or 30 years ago. I remember I worked with a radio announcer in Chicago. I said, Max, uh, you, need, you need some gold and silver, man. I'm <laughs> buying these coins. And, uh, you know, I, I held those, <laughs> those Canadian maple leaves for years. <laughs> and nothing ever happened there. So many times after these summer reports... We quickly digest the numbers, and then we say, all right, let's look at the forecast. And I, I gather from a comment you made earlier, this may be one of those times, too. Yes. This report, though, is it's different than an August report because we're having updated data that we normally wouldn't have in right. this August report. So this one bears a little bit more weight than historically what it would. Um, but because the crop is so late and with the emphasis on the Illinois crop being 24 percent poor to very poor, the country is not used to hearing that. And with uh, the Michigan crop and the Wisconsin crop only just half silking and the um, Ohio crop behind other states. So this is just going to lag on for a while. And as I've traveled throughout the Midwest, just looking from the car at the fields, like on my drive down here today, I could still see 
dirt between soybean rows. And I thought, good grief. This is soybeans that normally when I would drive here would be almost waist high and just canoping and beautiful. And then I see corn that's uh, curling in some fields. And I see corn that is tall and skinny and scraggly and just doesn't look healthy. But then in a different part of Wisconsin, it's, it's robust and it looks beautiful. So just so much variance to this crop this year. And the weather going forward is going to be paramount every week. Period. That's just going to be how it is. One thing that occurred to me looking at weekly crop bulletins the past couple of weeks with the progression of the crop, it has been a significant jump week to week in terms of the pods uh, filled and pod setting and uh, and the pollination of the crop. You look at the percentage from one week to the next, and it looks impressive. And then you compare it with where it should be normally compared to average. There's still quite a gap. And I think that's the biggest piece. That's a huge point. The traders who maybe aren't in terms of agriculture as much as the rest of us are, they see the progress from week to week, like you said, but they don't stop to look at what that would mean, historically speaking, and really stop to look back at those years where the yields were lagging behind. And it, it is tied to the crop progress as week by week goes on. Normally, we have corn and soybeans 70% good to excellent, slam dunk, no brainer, we're going to have a great crop. And now we are in the mid to low 50s for how good this crop is looking nationwide. And the places where it is not looking good are normally the states that are the bin buster producers. And we are not having that this year. It's it's Nebraska that is going to be having a great crop potentially, parts of western Iowa, some parts of Minnesota. But you get closer to the Mississippi River and east, and it's not there. And I'm so excited when the truth finally comes out and people you know, feel like they have their vindication from the standpoint of when the farmers are saying, this is not a normal crop, this is not a normal crop, and then they'll be able to show the world we were right. Our thanks to Naomi Bloom and Max for that discussion of the market situation. Naomi is with Stuart Peterson, based in West Bend, Wisconsin. And coming up, the subject will be Mirai sweet corn. Joining me in studio here in Huntley, Illinois, is Gary Pack. I've been introducing him as the godfather of Mirai sweet corn and uh, Twin Garden Farms, of course, in Harvard, Illinois. And two or three weeks ago, you said the spring planting season would make Mirai a little late. What's the status? Well, we're doing pretty good. It's, it was a late start, and uh, it's. Uh, we got plenty of corn, and the quality is really good, but it was a really interesting spring with all that rain. And the guys in the field, you know, I might be a, what you're calling the godfather of Mirai, but there's a lot of us that are working really hard to, to bring it to the customers. And they are enjoying it at about how many farmers markets now are you finding Mirai sweet corn? About 25 throughout the Chicagoland area. Uh, today, I think we're at 12 to 14 markets, and, and uh, just uh, check the website for uh, times and availability. And uh, you said one of the most often asked questions uh, that you get from customers, was this corn picked this morning before the market opened? Yeah, the old adage is that, uh, you know, you got to pick the corn and have the pot boiling. But uh, then they say, was this picked today? And I say, no. And they look at me like I'm crazy. And they said, we picked the day before. Uh, we we uh, put it in the green mesh bags, as everyone knows. And then we put it in the nice, cool, 40-degree cooler overnight, bring it to you and guarantee it for a week. And, of course, I've enjoyed it for a long time, and it does have a long life if you keep it in the refrigerator. Right. Well, if you keep it in the husk in the refrigerator, we guarantee it for a week, and I've got many, many fun stories of much longer. 
The other question that I'd like to discuss is the popularity of Mirai in Japan. Tell me about that. Yes, when we first uh, developed the seed in the in the middle 90s, uh, it was very uh, uh, low germ and, and low vigor, and so we had a relationship with the Japanese and went over there and, and uh, offered the seed to them, and, and they uh, take very close pay, pay very close attention and work very hard on small farms, and they were able to make a, a success, and they take it to markets and uh, auctions. So they auction the sweet corn over there, and they sell it as a fruit over there right now. As a fruit, yes, as a fruit, and then you know the funny last uh, yesterday morning when I was down by Nick, uh, the uh, Tom, the producer, he took a bite for the first time and he said, it "Tastes like fruit," and, I, <laughs> and we did, and that wasn't staged. <laughs> Good response. The uh, popularity, though, in the United States, the seed is grown in several other places here, isn't it? Right. It's uh, this. The seed's been a little bit hard. the The seed crop has not been the the greatest uh, as far as availability. So it's been a little bit short, and I know guys are looking for it and everything else. But we're hoping to fix that situation. But it's uh, it's real popular. It's niche markets. It's not easy to handle. Uh, you have to pick it by hand. Uh, there's no machinery involved because the kernels are so tender. And the development. Uh, how many crosses did you have to go through to get the uh, current Mirai developed? Well, it wasn't really planned, and, and so once it, we got close, it took seven generations to uh, get to the final product, but it was actually uh, putting all three sweet corn genes together uh, that we didn't think would work, and it worked in, in sort of surprises. It was actually a, a surprise. And while we get it at farmer's markets, we can get it, what, every day of the week in Harvard? Yes, every day of the week in Harvard, and actually we've gotten some really – uh, uh, cooperation from some local grocery stores that have it, the uh, Heinen's, the Sunsets, Whitney, um, Casey's in the Chicagoland area. So that's working out really well, too. So people don't have to wait for the farmer's market? Not not all the time. You know, i got to be careful now. The marketers, are, when I get home, the marketers are going to kill me <laughs> when I say this kind of stuff. But anyway, we're here, we're here to get corn to the customer, and, and it's a short season, so uh, it, we have to do the best we can. And as I mentioned earlier when uh, I was talking to uh, Mr. Duchesswad, Arlington Park, who, by the way, is going to be 98 years old, and wow. so this will be in time for a birthday gift for him. But a week ago at uh, the races when they honored him for being inducted into the Racing Hall of Fame, he uh, made the statement that he could live on sweet corn. And I said, have you had me, Ryan? And he looked at me and he said, no, I don't know what it is. So I said, we'll get you some when we come in for the Arlington Million. So today, you're going to make Mr. D very happy. And that's exciting for us. And that's that's the fun part of this job. It, you know, the, there's the weather and and conditions and all those kind of things sometimes get you down. But it's the, it's the fun part, just working with everybody and, and having fun and, and, you know, enjoying the good sweet corn. Final question. How long will Mirai be available? We will have Mirai at the markets till the middle of September, and then we have to shut her down and harvest seed. Okay. Well, Gary, I can't thank you enough for coming into the studio this morning and for bringing along a package or two of Mirai sweet corn. A visit with Gary Pack of Twin Garden Farms in Harvard, Illinois. 
More to come here on the Saturday Morning Show. Well, we're out of time, and uh, for the first time, I think I'm going to have Mirai Sweetcorn for breakfast when we get done here with our broadcast. Our thanks to Bob Ferguson for doing the engineering. Thanks to Gary Pack for joining us to talk about the Mirai Sweetcorn. Thanks to all of you for listening. Orion Samuelson keeps you connected to the world of business and agriculture on WGN. Hear his reports weekday mornings on the Steve Cochran Show and during the noon hour on the Wintrust Business Lunch. Plus, catch Orion and Max on Saturday mornings at 5 a.m. only on Chicago's WGN Radio 720.